The good news is we've been through the heavy breathing part of our workout now, okay? But, you know, with the workout videos that I do sometimes at my house, um, they're kind of broken down into different parts. And there's, you know, the warm-up, and then there's this heavy breathing part, which we've done both of those. But, so I like to call this last one the ab work and the cool down. Um, the ab work's usually um, at the end of the workout, and you're relieved when you get to that part because the heavy breathing is over. However, you still got some work to do. There's still, you know, a little bit of pain there. And then we'll have a little bit of fun with a cool down. So I've titled this talk, Theological Fitness Do Yes and Theological Fitness Do No. And you will see why a little bit later, and um, I will fulfill my Karate Kid threat that I made to some of you earlier. So I've heard it said that there are warnings, and then there are the warnings in Hebrews. You know, just this small admonition in our key verse to hold fast without wavering. I think that's a doozy right there. I mean, what happens as soon as you hear, don't waver? You want to waver, right? So some of my workout routines, they demand these numerous isometric holds. Have you ever tried to suspend a weight like dumbbells in the air um, or hold one of those strength poses for maybe 60 seconds? Um, have you heard of the plank position that's pretty popular now where you're in the push-up position but you have to stay up in that position for you know however long? Or there's the chair pose where you're supposed to sit back with your arms in the air like you're in a chair only there's no chair and you have to hold that pose for 60 seconds. And all of a sudden, you know, a, a meager minute seems never ending. Well, in the middle of these strength exercises, uh, my fitness instructor will yell, don't fidget. Well, as soon as he says that, for whatever reason, probably pain, um, I'm thinking of all the reasons why I really need to fidget right now. You know, like if I'm in that, uh, if I'm in that chair pose, all of a sudden there's an itch on my nose or my bangs are in my eyes. I just need to squirm just a little bit to get me out of that uncomfortable position. Well, our Hebrews 10.23 verse, we see the writer also authoritatively admonishing us not to waver. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're even encouraged to endure under divine chastisement. So in this section, we're going to talk about some of those areas where we are tempted to waver. We're going to talk about that divine discipline and these warnings and um, sin that ensnares us. We're also going to talk about looking after one another. So we're warned of the two dangers of despising and despairing under this chastening by looking to the source of our trials. Arthur Pink has some really good, he has a big fat commentary on Hebrews, but I really, really appreciate his section on divine chastisement. And we're going to be spending time in chapter 12 here. Um, but he talks about how the best of God's children need chastisement and that it's actually an outworking of God's covenant, faithful, covenant faithfulness to his children. But let's face it, I'm sitting here talking about the benefits and the love involved in discipline. But we all know that discipline stinks, right? We don't like it. 
And um, I don't think that changes in adulthood. Our children are very good at expressing how bad discipline stinks and how bad it hurts. No one asks for discipline. We're very good at disguising that kind of thing as adults, but we don't like it either. And yet loving parents know that discipline is necessary for our growth. And our Father in Heaven also disciplines every one of his children. And so we're encouraged in Hebrews not only to expect divine chastisement, but also not to grow weary from it because it's a sign of God's love. And so he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He's only repeating things we've already read in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, the themes from Job 517, Psalm 9412, Psalm 1967, Psalm 75, and all the way through to Revelation 319. Hmm. Since this is mentioned so many times in Scripture, it must be important, and we must have a hard time remembering it, right? Why is that? Why do we need to keep hearing that? Well, I think the picture that we have of our own sanctification is far different from reality. Um, we often have a tendency to think that we're much further along in that path to holiness that we actually, than we actually are. In fact, I think we're frequently deceived about what that path even is. So while we examine our growth and virtues and obedience, you know what God does? God graciously interrupts our delusional assessments with a dose of gospel truth. He's not punishing us, he's disciplining us. God's mercy does not lower the bar for our obedience, as great as his mercy are, is. But it actually guarantees our growth in grace as we look to his holy son, Jesus Christ. So when our father disciplines us, he is lovingly interrupting to force us to see our sin for what it really is and to recognize our own depravity and the true offense sin is against him. And it always leads us to Christ who went before us. And that truly is merciful. You know, sometimes we know exactly why we are in a trial in our lives for that moment. You know, we were sinning all along, now we're busted, the gig is up, and the consequences are there for us to pay. And we know how that all hap happened and came to be. But you know, often we're also the victims. You know, there might not be a particular offense that we have committed that can directly be linked to our suffering. And then we're left wondering, you know, why? Why is God allowing this affliction in my life right now? Did I do something? The preacher to the Hebrews, he points out that Jesus is the one who actually got what all of us really deserve. And he points this out so that we won't become faint-hearted in our sin. 
He is the one who's truly offended. And since he demonstrated his love for us on the cross, we can be confident then that even in those times when we're afflicted and we don't understand why, God is sovereignly working for our good so that we can share in his holiness. You know, I keep talking about exercising the same kick 10,000 times and, and all this conditioning involved in doing that. We need motivation for that kind of thing, right? When it comes to physical fitness, we need motivation for that sort of thing. You know, sometimes I have to talk myself, well, every time, basically, I like to exercise, but I still have to talk myself into it. A lot of the time, I don't feel like changing my clothes. I don't feel like getting dirty and sweaty and taking a shower. And, and I have to ask myself some questions, like, well, what am I doing this for anyway? You know, what am I training for? Well, physically, I'm just going for maintenance here. I'm 40 years old, okay, so I'm not trying to fit into a certain size or anything like that, but I do know that as I get older, my muscle is going to deteriorate, especially after the age of 50. So I want to be strong, and so I want to be physically fit in that way so that I can be more healthy as I grow older. And as my kids are getting older now, you know, if they ask me to play a game of wiffle ball, kickball, or something like that outside, I still want to be able to try to clean their clock a little bit, you know? Like I told you, I'm competitive. So I want to be able to keep up with them. If they want to go for a bike ride on the CNO Canal, I want to say, let's go, I'm ready. So that's why, and that motivates me then to have the active, healthy life and to train, to have the stamina for it. But it doesn't always feel good. Well, the preacher to the Hebrews, he uses this analogy, this physical analogy of fitness, of a runner in the race. He also uses the analogy of a combatant in Grecian games to exhort the believer to endurance in the faith, even under divine chastisement, laid out for us in Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. This is a very uncomfortable exhortation. And... Um, we always know, if we're not going through a trial ourselves, which we often are, we always know someone else who is, right? And we never know what kind of encouragement to offer to them. And I want to give you verse 11 here as a great encouragement when somebody is going through divine chastisement. I'm going to read for you the New King James Version because Arthur Pink uses that, and I really like his um, commentary on it. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Amen. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, it's tough to motivate others to learn about divine discipline. Notice I didn't title anything. But, you know, because you wouldn't exactly mark it on the calendar with a star. You might have not even stuck around for the lunch if you heard this is what we were going to be talking about today. I mean, um, I think we might try to run away from learning about divine chastisement even as much as we try to avoid going through it. And yet this word afterward in verse 11 infers that every single one of us is going to encounter these trials in our life. It's also very searching what will 
our divine discipline reveal afterward? Arthur Pink asserts that we will be affected one way or another by divine chastisement. So whether we're better off or worse off, that afterward is going to reveal our spiritual condition. So he pushes the reader to ask, what fruits our afflictions have produced? And he asks this, have your past experiences hardened, soured, frozen you? Or have they softened, sweetened, mellowed you? Has pride been subdued? Self-pleasing been mortified? Patience developed? How have afflictions and chastisements left us? What does the afterward reveal? Are you out of shape? We see from these passages that enduring trials, even divine discipline, is no passive thing. We're to be trained by these trials. We're to be exercised by them. And so Pink explains how this word trained or exercised at the end of the verse is borrowed from a Greek word that was used in the gymnastic games. And he says it had reference to that athlete stripping himself of his outer clothing. Thus this word in our text is almost parallel with the laying aside of every weight in verse 1. So if afflictions cause us to be stripped of pride, of laziness, of selfishness, of a revengeful spirit, then fruit will be produced. So our motivation then to train theologically under affliction is much different than my motivation to train physically. It's much different than just maintenance for a healthy spiritual life, right? It's to yield much fruit, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That kind of exercise can be a lot more painful than physical training. I mean, think about it. What are you exercising? Well, Pink gives some suggestions. Your conscience, prayer, the grace of meekness. Does that ever feel good? Patience, faith, hope, and love, to name a few. You know, half the time when I'm physically training, I'm not even aware of all the parts of my body that are benefiting from the workout. That's why personal trainers are so good, right? And that's why I like those videos sometimes, or to have a teacher with me. Because they have designed a workout that will exercise parts of my body that I didn't even know existed. And I imagine this is also the case spiritually. But I do know that whatever's burning is definitely being trained at that moment. So if my biceps are on fire, I know they're getting a good workout. If my lungs are tightening up and I'm breathing all heavy, I know my cardiovascular system is being trained. So under affliction, if my pride is hurting, Guess what weight needs to be laid aside? Man, we need to exercise a lot of prayer, don't we? And a lot of meekness in doing this. It is not joyful at the present. We have that right there in the scripture for us. 
but nevertheless, it's another big word. We are encouraged to endure because the only one with the fitness to run that race of faith and obedience is already victorious. He has made us qualified. And now through his powerful and helping spirit, Jesus Christ will finish the work he has begun in us. So we can be thankful then even for divine chastisement from our heavenly father. He loves us too much to keep us running that race, that marathon, with the full weight of our sin weighing us down. And since Christ, his son, has already paid the curse for that sin, God is going to be faithful then to transform us into the image of his son. And that, my friends, is a serious workout for those who will be trained by it. So let's talk about some of those warnings. In Hebrews, we have this continuous call to perseverance. And these exhortations are strong warning passages scattered throughout the verses. Um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 3, verse 12, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 11, through verse, chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 39, and chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. All warning passages. This is a sermon, right? So with an audience of believers, maybe you wouldn't expect this kind of strong language, like how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or for if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. What are we to make of these passages from Hebrews? Is a believer able to lose their salvation? Is our faith secure? I mean, we're good confessing Calvinists here, right? What would the tulip be without our P? Perseverance of the saints. And if our salvation is secure in Christ, what's the purpose of these warnings then? Are they real or are they just teasing us? Well, the answers are yes and yes. Thomas Schreiner, and going back to his book, Run to Win the Prize, he explains to us that the purpose of warnings in the New Testament is redemptive and salvific. They serve as an important purpose in our growth in holiness. And he explains that they're kind of like signs that keep us on track. And so when we hear them, we know we have to depend on God when we hear them. So there's two important points that I've been trying to really hammer down with you in these talks. And one is that every Christian will persevere. But the other one is that faith is a fighting grace. And so these severe warnings that we find in Hebrews and throughout scripture help to keep us from wavering in our confession of hope. And so when we hear that without wavering, we are reminded that we need to fight to hold on. And we're reminded that it's not going to be easy. 
there are times where we are going to want to waver. There are times when it's going to be very difficult to hold fast. And so this illustration of the race in the beginning of Hebrews 12 shows us that the Christian life demands fitness. You know, thankfully, God is faithful to preserve his own. And we persevere because God is preserving us in Christ, period. You know, one of the means of preservation, though, is to call us to perseverance through these warnings. You know, Schreiner explains that we, we do the same thing with our children when we tell them what's going to happen if they play in traffic, right? We're warning them. These warnings are severe, and they are true. You know, if you go out and play in the middle of traffic, there's a good chance you're going to get hit by a car. You could even die. So what does our kid do? Ah, mom's just full of it. You know, I don't believe that. She's teasing me. No. They believe us because of our relationship, and they know. Because we know the warnings are true, we heed the warning you know, through suffering, through fear, through this chastisement. In our ordinary, everyday life of faith and obedience, we are encouraged to hold fast to our confession without wavering. In order to do this, we need to be strong in that confession and convinced of that confession and we need to have that relationship with our heavenly father fitness requires conditioning and that's what these warnings do they condition us you see wavering is really a trust issue do we trust in god's word do we really believe his promises, and his faithfulness. That's what we need to ask ourselves when we're tempted to sin, when we're under affliction. And if we do believe, we will heed these strong warnings. And we're going to move ahead with a fighting faith. We will be super abundantly engaged in the supremacy of Christ over everything the world can offer us. Now, the problem is, though, we're still weak, right? We're still weak in this age. Our unbelieving hearts, they look to other things to trust in all the time. We still need these strong warnings. Even if we believe they're true, and even if you're nodding your head to what I'm saying now, you're still going to need these warnings. Our lives show a continual pattern of sin and repentance. And then sin and repentance, sin, and repentance. And our sin reveals just how weak we really are. And our faith then looks to Christ for our strength, to deliver us from this body of death, as Paul puts it. See, we know that God is faithful to preserve all those whom he has called. But we also know something else. We know that there are many who profess faith in Christ, but it's only genuine believers who persevere to the end. So along the way, we are sadly going to see some professors of the faith, you know, friends, congregants, 
brothers and sisters stumble and never get back up again. We're going to notice others that have taken a different path altogether. And then even those of us with true, genuine faith are susceptible to backsliding for a period of time. Joel Beakey has written a great little book. It's under 100 pages, uh, published by Cruciform Press, called Getting Back Into the Race. I highly recommend it, and it's a book about backsliding. My only uh, critique of the book is that if you're backsliding, you're probably not going to want to read a book about backsliding, are you? And they're probably not going to appreciate that as a gift either, you know? So, you know, I just recommend everyone to read that book now and encourage one another now while you're not backsliding. But anyway, he um, defines backsliding as a season of increasing sin and decreasing obedience in those who profess to be Christians. Okay, so this is different from that struggle I was just saying between sin and repentance, sin and repentance. The key word here is struggle. I mean, we are sick over our sin. We hate our sin, and so we repent in faith to the Lord, and we look to Christ for forgiveness and for holiness. But when a Christian is backslidden, they begin to lose their fight. Their fight against sin and temptation, and they subtly lose their desire to obey. That is the danger zone in the Christian life. You know, think of that yellow caution tape that says danger zone, caution. We should mark that, right? Beaky warns, the longer one persists in backsliding, the less right one has to claim to be a true Christian. For repentance is the essence of Christianity. That's such a good line, I think. But it might make you wonder, you know, what is the difference then between backsliding and straight-up apostasy that we're warned of all throughout Hebrews? And that can be really hard to determine. I mean, now we see why these warnings are so strong. You cannot see the difference between a backslidden Christian and one who was turned away from the, their profession of faith. Why is that? Because they are both living disobediently to the faith. They're not running with us. And so the answer is revealed in true repentance for sin. And since we're all susceptible to backsliding, we need to hold fast to the fact that true faith cannot remain in the danger zone. The Holy Spirit will lead a backslidden Christian to genuine repentance. And so in Hebrews, we are encouraged to run that marathon that is the Christian life and to train like a Grecian Olympic fighter because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, it's Christ who gives us peace, and our holiness is in him alone. And yet, we see this tension that here at the same time, we're told to strive like a fighter for these very same things. 
So that illustrates how hard it is for us to hold fast to our confession hope, of hope without wavering. So what I'd like to do now is kind of transition into some practical application that we can get right out of Hebrews and then uh, give you a little illustration for fun. So the preacher to the Hebrews, he gives three strong appeals to help us strive for holiness in chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. So here the preacher's moving into his application section and he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, recognize that word? What does the afterward reveal for Esau? When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Um, in Richard Phillips' commentary on Hebrews, he points out that those beginning words, see to it, really denote the pastoral care that one Christian has for another. It's the same, that Greek word is the same word that we use for elder or minister. So like brothers or sisters, we are to look after one another in that way. And then he says, in that way, we are used by God for the perseverance of those that are his own. So part of our striving for peace with everyone is to promote holiness in one another. We're to make sure that no one is flirting with that danger zone, that caution tape. How well do we strive to take care that everyone is on the right path and that they're getting back up when they fall down? Because we do fall down. Help one another up. We're also told to see to it that no troubling root of bitterness springs up among us. Well, that kind of sounds vague in general, but um, maybe you'll see in the cross-references of your own Bibles that the preacher is specifically expanding on Deuteronomy 29.18 there. And what it really is is a strong rebuke against false teaching that leads to apostasy. That's a tough one in our day and age. I mean, we live in this culture of, of tolerance and it seems like the one who's pointing out the false teaching can get more criticism than the one who's actually proclaiming a different gospel. So this is an admonition that the church needs to take very seriously as we see this root of lies exposed in Deuteronomy as a poisonous fruit that can bring disaster to a covenant people. That's yellow tape, guys. False teaching is yellow tape. That is a form of backsliding. Or worse. So lastly, we're warned against profaning the holy. And we got Esau here, right? Who traded his blessed inheritance for a bowl of stew. And I kind of relax when I read this part because I think, oh, well, at least I'm not as bad as Esau, right? I got that one. Check. Amy's good here. I would never be that ridiculous, but we are, we are that way. 
We are constantly tempted to pursue worldly pleasures over true spiritual blessing. We chase situational happiness over enduring joy. We're foolish too. You just look at the state of the evangelical church today and you're going to see a cavalier attitude toward holiness. So above all, this key verse, it, it, esteem, it calls us to esteem God's promises to us. Esau did not do that. It's a call to elevate the sacred over the common. The common isn't bad. There's nothing wrong with a bowl of stew. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the common to the glory of the Lord. But in the life of Esau, we see another example of misplaced trust. He looked to external means to be fulfilled. And he was so sensual that even when he sought repentance, it couldn't be found. Why is that? It's because Esau wasn't sorry for his irreverence to his covenant relationship with the Lord. No, he was hardened. He was wallowing in his own self-pity when he realized the consequences. This is a grave warning for all of us who profess that our hope is in the Lord to actually live as we are called. So there's three points of application coming right out of the sermon to the Hebrews. And I thought now I'd offer you a little illustration from my crazy childhood that I think relates to this well. Um, I grew up in a house where our garage was converted into a dojo. And what a dojo is, is kind of like a martial arts training room. And it provided all kinds of interesting playthings for me and my brother and sister when we were bored. I mean, we had one of those like Jean-Claude Van Damme stretching things to try to be able to do a split and crank our legs. And all this, you know, weapons and equipment in there. And, I mean, how could you ever be bored when you had items like a bucket full of dried corn in your dojo? What, you guys didn't have that? You didn't have buckets of dried corn in your house? Didn't you know that, like, if you would just shove your fingers in there over and over again, they would get stronger and develop these great calluses? And you would have nice, strong fingers? Doesn't every woman want calloused fingers? No? Oh, okay. Well, that's what we would do, you know, toughen our fingers in this bucket full of corn. But my brother Luke and I, we would use it for some other things. Um, we would, when we were bored, we would uh, try to get each other in situations that they couldn't get out of. So, for example, well, my dad was also Secret Service, so um, he had handcuffs around. So we would take the handcuffs, you know, say my brother would handcuff me to a piece of workout equipment, and then he'd take that key. He'd smile at me, you know, and he'd bury that key in the bucket of corn, you see. And then he'd push that bucket of corn, you know, just out of reach for me, and then smile again, turn the lights out, and leave. And so then I was left to tap into my inner MacGyver skills to try to figure out a way out. And if you don't know who MacGyver is, I don't like you because you're too young. Good times. But now I actually think about how those creative ways to pass the time may have served as great training exercises 
for mental fitness. You know, sometimes we would have to think of some pretty interesting ways to escape. Uh, you know, maybe I could find a bow staff or something and, and reach that corn and knock it over and, you know, use it to fish that key over to me. But usually I used better mental fitness than that because I had this little sister who was very curious and would uh, poke her head in sometimes and I could manipulate her into doing the easy thing and coming and getting the key, you know. Got to think outside of the box there. But there's this moment of panic while you're stuck to the <laughs> machine in the dark, not able to get the key, and you're wondering, uh, why in the world did I think this was a good idea to begin with? How did I get myself into this mess? And I think this is a thought we so often think as well as disciples. You know, we're so eager to get to that status as a mature disciple. I was so eager to get to that status as MacGyver worthy, but we're not so willing to go through the training and the discipline that it takes to get us there. It's usually not as fun as handcuffing your sister to a piece of exercise equipment either. And if you're the one being handcuffed, you do wonder why in the world you would ever have put yourself in that situation in the first place. Well, I think that's what the character Daniel Russo from The Karate Kid was probably thinking during the beginning of his karate training. And Mr. Miyagi, he teaches us a really good lesson, a great illustration for training without wavering in this movie. And he asks Daniel if he's ready for his first karate lesson, and Daniel responds, I guess so. Mr. Miyagi did not like that answer very much, and he explains that training in karate is like walking on road. You can walk on right side, or you could walk on left side, but if you walk in the middle, you get squished like grape. Understand? There's no wavering. Either you karate do yes, or karate do no. Karate do guess so, like grape. Understand? Well, now more eager to train, Daniel's first lesson, it ends up looking a lot like doing Mr. Miyagi's chores. And so he's told to wash all the cars in the lot, and there were a lot of cars, and to follow that with a good waxing. And he's given specific motions that he's to use to do this. Wax on, left hand. Wax off, right hand, breathe in through nose, out through mouth. This was very confusing to Daniel, but he obliges, and Mr. Miyagi returns to him hours later, and he doesn't say, oh, this is fabulous. No, he corrects his motions, and he makes sure that he's doing them with the proper form. Well, Daniel's following so-called karate lessons involve sanding the deck, painting the fence, and giving Mr. Miyagi's house a good new fresh coat of paint. So finally, as you can imagine, he's fed up. 
And here's this scene, and it's at nighttime, and Daniel's on this ladder, and he's just finishing painting Mr. Miyagi's entire house. He's a teenage boy. He is exhausted. He is disgusted. And Mr. Miyagi comes in from a fishing trip, whistling and happy as can be. Well, he lets his instructor have it. Where is all this training that he is supposed to be getting? He is done being Mr. Miyagi's chore boy. That's when the wise man commands, Daniel, son, show me sand the floor. Now Daniel is really confused. He's a little intimidated by this guy, right? So um, he's confused and he bends over and he starts to pretend like he's sanding the floor. He's like, no, no, no. Mr. Miyagi shows him to do them in the air and he corrects him, showing the rehearsed and repeated motions again. Now show me, wax on, wax off. Paint the fence, always look eye. Paint the house side, side. Well, the next thing you know, as Daniel is doing all of these chore motions, all of these moves in the air, Mr. Miyagi comes at him with all these punches and kicks, accompanied with all these intimidating ninja noises. And amazingly, Daniel is blocking every move with the motions that he learned doing Mr. Miyagi's chores. This constant repetition involved in the daily motions of housework has served Daniel's muscle memory to be a master of defense. It's truly amazing. And the genius, Mr. Miyagi, now has this whole new spiffy, shiny place in cars to show for this. Well, likewise, God disciplines us in the everyday. We usually have no idea what in the world he is up to but we can be sure that it is for his glory and for our good. We might be bored. We might be tired. We might be plain beat up from whatever it is that we are enduring as our normal for that time. But we should never waver in doubt for God's will for us. It is nothing less than to be conformed to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, and he will have his way to get us there. How do I know that? Our last blessed words of this text, for he who promised is faithful. Our exhortation is full of hope and promise. That is the beauty of the fitness of a Christian who's trying to persevere all the way to the end true hope and fulfilled promises. You know, we took a pretty good look at our confession of hope in that second session, but let's end this thing by talking about promise. You know, there's a saying that a warrior is to trust in his training. But we can do even better than that. Yes, I trust God's word. I trust my training in it. I trust in my confession of hope. But it isn't merely the statements of faith that my trust is in. And as good as my conditioning in God's word may be, my faith is not in my training itself. My faith is in Christ. My faith is in a God who made an oath before the beginning 
of creation. My faith is in the faithfulness in the one who has promised. So we read in Hebrews 6, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, promise is part of God's character. God's words are promise, and he is faithful to himself. So when God makes a promise, every piece of it is true, and every part of it can be counted on. And in his grace, God doesn't just make promises. He faithfully recorded them to establish his covenantal relationship with his people. And we call this record of God's redemption in history the Bible. But it's more than a record of events. It's God's living word to us. It is active. And it's a covenant treaty from a mighty king to his people. In scripture, we see the revelation and the outworking of God's promise that he made in eternity that we saw in Psalm 110. We call that the covenant of redemption. And we see in this great covenant a loving God who seeks us out for himself to lavish us with Christ's own inheritance. So our weight of expectation is he who has promised before time. And I spend an entire chapter in my book, Theological Fitness, I don't have the time to go through it all with you, on the different covenants that we find in scripture and how we can see God's faithfulness to us through those covenants. Just briefly, I do want to sum up that we see in scripture a covenant of works which reveals that there are serious requirements to have a right relationship with God. But then we also see a covenant of grace revealing that God himself has fulfilled those requirements on behalf of his people. So, since Christianity is a historic faith based on actual events in time, we know that God has done what he has promised. We know that his very blood ratified this covenant. And we can now look forward to its consummation. Christ carried the weight of expectations for his people so that we can trust that God's complete work of glorification will be done in us. Even now, as we saw in Psalm 110, Christ is expanding his kingdom through the church. He's calling people from all parts of the earth into his covenant community. And we expect him to come for his bride. And because of his promises and because of his fulfillment, we don't have to be anxious trying to live up to other people's expectations. Why do we do that? No, we can live as changed people, being formed into Christ's likeness. 
And so in gratitude for everything that he has done and everything that he is doing, we really can love and serve one another as a reflection of his great love for us. So all of us who are united to Christ by faith are recipients of his grace, his amazing grace. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself. And we confess that he is Lord and we proclaim the work he has done on our behalf. And now that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his people, he has sealed us with his spirit as a guarantee that his work is effectual for our salvation. God has said it. Christ has done it. And the Holy Spirit is applying it to his people. So we can count on it. He who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a rich portion of your word, Lord, that is full of hope and is full of promise. We thank you for these warnings that you give us. Um, they make us uncomfortable. They're painful, just like the discipline that we have to go through is painful, Lord. Nonetheless, we thank you for it. We pray that um, when we are met with adversity, that we will recognize that this too is from you and that we are to be trained by it, Lord, and that you will produce the fruit in our lives through it. I pray that we can comfort one another with those truths. Lord, we thank you that you gave us these promises in your word. We thank you that you are faithful to those promises. And Father, I just thank you for again, again for this time that we have spent together um, meditating on and learning more from this sermon letter to the Hebrews. I pray that we are all encouraged to persevere by it. And I know the sacrifices and the planning that it takes to put together a retreat like this. And, you know, the packing and arranging for the kids to be watched. Lord, I just pray that we're not overwhelmed by all this and that we don't just, you know, jump back into life as if this special time together learning didn't occur, but that we'll go home and unpack these truths as well, not just our clothes and toothbrushes and um, whatever else, but that we will unpack these truths and, and study them further and discuss them further and be encouraged more and more by them as we think about it. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.